0: On this episode, Patrick McLaughlin, a senior research fellow and director of policy analytics here at Mercatus, talks regulations and the latest Ten Commandments report with Wayne Cruz, who is the president for policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. They discuss regulatory changes since President Biden has been in office, the estimated cost of regulations and much more. If you would like to connect with a scholar featured on this episode, please email the Mercatus Outreach team at mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Today we're going to talk about federal regulations. It's a topic of perennial interest to those that live inside the Beltway. There's always plenty of experts ready to offer their opinions on specific regulations, but at the same time, it's difficult to see the big picture on regulations. How many regulations are there? How has that number changed over time and why? What does it all mean for the economy and ultimately you and me? Joining me today to shine some light on these questions is Wayne Cruz. Wayne is the vice president for policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He's widely published and is a contributor to Forbes. He's a frequent public speaker, has testified before Congress, More times than he can count, I'm sure. He's been cited in plenty of economics articles and law reviews and white papers. His work spans regulatory reform, antitrust and competition policy, and other topics. And perhaps most importantly, Wayne can still do a handstand on a skateboard, although it's not clear if that skateboard is moving or not, Wayne. (laughs) Wayne, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it.
0: Wayne, you recently released the latest edition of your annual report about federal regulations, the 10,000 Commandments report, which listeners you can easily find by Googling 10,000 Commandments or going to CEI.org. We're going to get back to some specifics of that report in just a few minutes. But first, maybe just at a high level, let's talk about the state of regulatory policy in the U.S. So if you're following the news or on social media, probably more so on social media, You would think the pendulum has swung from a deregulatory policy in the Trump years to massive regulatory growth since, well, maybe since the start of the pandemic, or maybe since President Biden took office. Either way, would you characterize that as true or false, Wayne? Has the pendulum swung?
1: I think it has swung back quite a lot. Now, the caveat to that, and we may talk a little bit about some of Trump's deregulatory measures is that Trump, in his own way, was highly regulatory as well. I mean, we got AI guidance, the Space Force, trade regulations, interest in regulating social media, an antitrust increase. So we had plenty of economic type regulation under Trump, and even advocacy of things like uh, family uh, family leave programs that his daughter played a big hand in. But things really changed with the pandemic, and. And then again, subsequently with Biden and the philosophy he brought in. So you asked about the big picture. Well, with the pandemic, we got the Families First Coronavirus Act. We got the CARES Act uh, with Biden coming in. We initially got the American Rescue Plan. We got the Innovation Act, the Infrastructure Act, the... Inflation act and you so you have an, a lot of pieces of legislation that I, that are regulatory in and of themselves that we can touch on. But when Biden first came in, the entire philosophy of regulation changed. See, with Trump and even with presidents before him, we had this executive order called twelve eight six six that said that regulations for should justify their cost. Before that, it was even tougher it, the re- regulation cost uh, benefits should exceed their costs but under prior presidents, regulations should justify their costs. Biden came in with a new executive directive, a memorandum called Modernizing Regulatory Review. He didn't do away with that 12866 benefits justify cost order, but he got rid of everything that Trump had put in place in terms of regulatory oversight. The task forces on regulatory oversight, the one-in-two-out directive. Uh, all of the procedures that Trump had put in to kind of put a break on the administrative state. And effectively, what one in, two out was, was something of a regulatory cost freeze. You might even say a a, a little bit of a baby regulatory budget. I think you and I both testified in House Budget Committee on issues surrounding that, on on that theme a few years back. But that basically was to put the brakes on regulation. And then, Trump had also done some things on an issue that is kind of dear to me in the sense that this stuff can be dear to anybody. But he had put in place an executive order to also restrain not just regulations, but also sub-regulatory guidance documents. Biden also did away with that. So this had effects in the way regulatory oversight takes place now. Biden got rid of the emphasis on cost benefit analysis. He emphasizes net benefits, but those are net benefits as progressives see them and If you've got you know listeners who are who are uh, are deep into this kind of thing, check out the late september hearing oversight hearing in the Senate for the new administrator for the office of administration and regulatory affairs and you would hear a lot of this well we're looking at net benefits of regulations and you know, it, it, it is the case that there's a, there's not a lot that progressives don't think there's a need to regulate. I mean, we're talking banking, healthcare, artificial intelligence, equity, and so forth. Biden has implemented this. It's more of an, of an opening of the floodgate. And oh, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and I refer to that testimony of the new uh, potential appointee, the OIRA was charged with ostensibly overseeing rules and regulations and making sure the overall uh, benefits of the regulatory state exceed the cost. But instead, it's now enlisted in the pursuit of net benefits. So there effectively is no regulatory oversight as we used to think of it. So this will be a subject, you know, you know, everybody's, all anybody's talking about today is the elections, but this will be a subject perhaps for hearings in the 118th Congress and maybe something that gets addressed in the 119th
0: and of course, you're one of the people who keeps track of what those hidden costs are to the degree that you can. And uh, I, I understand very well that that's a, a difficult task, given the opacity of regulations and their costs anyway. But let's let's dwell on your point about OIRA, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, for a little bit. This office dates back to the 1980s, created in, in the Reagan years, if I recall correctly. It was somewhat transformed in the Clinton years when Executive Order 12866, which you mentioned, was issued in 1993. But apart from that, I think most people that are familiar with OIRA would say it's got a pretty strong culture. It's a, a culture of, as, as you characterize in your report, of regulatory supervision. And, and now you're saying that, at least on paper, uh, the president is trying to change OIRA from being a regulatory supervisor to having a role of, uh, here's your quote, regulatory promoter, amplifier, and initiator. Uh, but I, I wonder if that's more true on paper than in reality, or or not. But it's probably speculation at this point. We're not too far into the Biden administration. Well, I guess we're almost at the half point, but still, things cultures change slowly.
1: There was actually a time, Patrick, when I was going to go to work at the FDA and I did work at the FDA for a short time. Then I was even going to go to work at OIRA (laughs) because I really believed in that mission. (laughs) I still do. I just think it needs to be replaced with an office of no in quotes, you know, kind of tongue in cheek. But I think there are great people at OIRA who do analysis. And I know people who have been who, who are doing it now, people who used to do it and have left. But. If you look now at the you're, – you're familiar with the Unified Agenda. You've, some of the listeners may not be. If if you're – to the extent you can track regulation and it's not easy to do, you can look at the Federal Register, but there's also something called the Unified Agenda of Federal Regulations. It comes out twice a year, and the second time it comes out, agencies present their regulatory plans. And you can go and read – speaking of this change in tone at wire, you can go and read the last two – years worth of agendas, preambles. And you can definitely see that they've taken Biden's modernizing regulatory review and pursuit of regulatory benefits to heart. And it's reflected in the preambles they write because they're talking about building back better, the climate agenda, the equity agenda, financial services agenda, all the ways that the uh, the administration wants to enact if it can't get all of Build Back Better, at least components of it. So, the, so it literally is the case that OIRA, the acting directorship, and I, and going by the um, comments of the of the new director, has changed its tone. Patrick, you'll remember this too. We were in the midst of the pandemic, and the question is, well, you know, okay, we, yeah, 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 we're doing all this spending. We're spending trillions of dollars, and gosh, that, that's that's shame. I wish we weren't doing that. And well. To offset it a little bit, here's some regulations we can roll back. (laughs) It's very frustrating to me. We, you know, I want to do all that, but I know that in comparison, rolling back a few regulations is is nothing compared to shutting down an economy and locking down an economy. But yet we did it. We were happy about it. We pursued it. We pursued it aggressively, and we'll do it again when the next shock happens. But that last Trump. Unified agenda was was talking about those kinds of regulatory rollbacks, which it should, which was great to its credit. And now there's a complete shift. You know, now there's the the, the shift toward um, you know, having uh, you know federal programs for long COVID and you know all these all these new things that are part of the uh, of the agenda. I hope that, um, and I well, I know there are people at OIRA who who recognize that regulation doesn't equate with government overseeing something that you know one of the big emphases at cei is that free enterprise does not mean that companies just get to run around wild and doing whatever they want to do the great thing about capitalism and producing and and free enterprise is that alongside the, the new goods and services that you create you also create the risk management institutions that discipline those potentially risky new goods and services. That's as much a part of the market process as anything else. And when federal regulators step in, you know the typical thing that the left will do is think of a value and then name an agency after it. And they substitute their judgment for actual regulation. I always joke that you know all tainted meat was approved by the by the USDA. <laughs> Just because you have regulators doesn't mean that you're um, that that you're actually regulating. That's always the choice you face when we think about what OIRA can do. I I think there first there needs to be some chartering within OIRA, and I and I would kind of joke that we need an office of no instead. But there has to be something that offsets the inevitable and jump to political failure that the regulators always take and instead recognizes the phenomenon of market failure. And then not only that, once you implement regulations or government oversight or government infrastructures, you always pursue and leave open the development of avenues to transfer those back to the competitive sphere. The problem now is, and progressives, our Fred Smith said this, the progressives were geniuses in the sense that they removed all of the main main resources, airsheds, watersheds, airspaces, from the private sphere to the political sphere. And that's where they remain. And if, uh, if we're looking for political oversight, I think that leads to problems. And it also entrenches problems because now, since we had done that already for the last 200 years, That made it inevitable for us to do the infrastructure bill and now the innovation bill. So I think prior mistakes like that that abandon free enterprise end up causing new problems later that make it even more difficult for us to engage from political management of the economy and move back towards something closer to laissez-faire. So the job is big and OIRA isn't up to the kinds of changes that I think have to take place. So that's kind of the jam we're in.
0: You're saying that we risk the worst of both worlds when we rely on, on regulation so much in the sense that we end up getting a lot of regulations, but at the same time, maybe they don't do much. Maybe they aren't effectively doing what they're intended to do.
1: That's a that's a great way to put it. And just for an example of like what I mean by, by the entrenchment, and then why you know why it, suddenly in twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three it's too late to say oh well uh, OIRA can, overseeing a rule can have a big benefit. You just think about drones, for example. When Congress, keep in mind too, it's not, you know, you get a few dozen laws every year, but then you get 3,000 plus regulations and then tons and tons of guidance documents on top of that. Well, just a few years ago, when the FAA issued its rule on uh, drones, you could, it was a 400 page rule, but virtually the entire industry now, rather than being a private sector phenomenon where, you know, out in the hinterlands, we develop new forms of property rights and new forms of networks and property owners like me and my neighbor at the farm in Southside Virginia develop new airspace corridors and that grows and then grows on top of new, new arrangements. Instead, everything is built top down. You know, They're trying to do the air taxis in the cities first, that's, that sort of thing. But 400-page rule, there were at least six areas where they, that I had tallied up and there, there, was, there was probably more than that. But, but airworthiness, pilot certification, crashworthiness, how high the drone needs to be before it drops off your package. All of these things are to be governed not by laws, not by regulations but by guidance documents coming out of the agency. So here you have before an industry even gets off the ground and before we even begin to develop the new property rights institutions that are necessary not just for it but for other kinds of corridors too, like the, the 5G and like a battery charging station that, that Biden is so kicked on, all of the cross-industry knowledge that we would be getting from developing new kinds of rights away gets thrown out, of, out the window because drones simply get put into the 80-year-old 80, 80 airspace packaging. But the big problem we have is that it has, it has preempted the possibility of laissez-faire. And I think that's the real problem. And I think, you know, you, you're talking about costs of regulation. Boy, <laughs> if we say you can't say it out to three decimal places, you can't even say what the proper trillions number is <laughs> when you're talking about <laughs> the kinds of uh, cramping that's happened in an economy just by the displacement of, uh, of private enterprise. And you make
0: a good point to relate that to, to cost. The potential innovations you're describing by the market even in things like developing property rights are vital. I mean, they're the, really the they're what drives economic growth. Innovation, innovation is, and when regulators step in and define a certain area, and then inevitably fail to update, or I shouldn't say inevitably, often fail to update, uh, like in, in scenarios you're describing where they're using. 80-year-old, 60-year-old sets of rules to govern how drones operate. That is a failure to innovate. It's a failure to innovate on property rights. It's a failure to innovate on the crafting of law in and of itself. Not that we have a shortage of, of lawyers in this country. We just don't really put them to this task. <laughs> but, but let's talk about your number. What is, in your estimate, the, the cost of regulations and how do you come up with that?
1: Yeah. Well, you know me, I don't actually think you can count the cost of regulations, but I use a placeholder of, uh, of 2 trillion. You know, I, I took James Buchanan's economic philosophy class and, you know, he he talked about utility and, you know, value and, and all of that. And a third party observer can't tell what something costs to you. That's something that's internal to you. And that was always the thing that bugged me. Even when I got started in this stuff, back in the, sadly, back in the 90s. But everybody in town, you know, was working on, you know, tax and budget and welfare reform and the wars. And, and, you know, I thought, well, you know, regulation is a good thing to look at. And that was back, that was when I started the the 10,000 commandments. I thought, you know, well, why not look at, you know, if we've got the historical tables in the federal budget, and we we may hate the deficit and and the debt, but we can always go and look and see and easily read what it is. But the same's not true for regulation. So I started tabulating it. And um, back at that time, you know, I would look at, you know, register pages, and I talked about how they don't tell you anything, but, you know, look at them anyway, numbers of rules, and, you know, which agencies are doing the most activity. And I, I love the stuff you guys are doing by the way on restrictions. And, later on, I have some things that you've got that I want to cite with respect to restrictions and um, executive orders. Back at that time, when this was after the, in the nineties, the last time we had bipartisanship and you had the small business regulatory reform passed and the Unfunded Mandates Act passed, and you had the Congressional Review Act, but not only did you have those, you had something called the Regulatory Right to Know Act. And the federal government was supposed to tabulate Costs of regulations. And it was not only supposed to do the annual costs of of cost and benefits of regulations, which, by the way, are four years over the year. The last one we got was 2019 fiscal year. And they were not only supposed to give you the yearly cost, but also the aggregate cost. And back even back at that time, 20 years ago, the costs were approaching $2 trillion. So, you know, I'm always tweaking them, you know, to get out the new ones because it's so overdue. But we also look at, you know, rules in the register. I love to take a look at guidance documents. When I, I took up that issue and it's it's a little bit it's a little bit of overlap with of that with Ten Thousand Commandments, but it is a separate project. But when Obama was president and he wanted to get things done, he became famous for saying i've got a pen and i've got a phone and if congress doesn't act i'll step in and uh i'll do what i can uh, and act and biden has has effectively put that on steroids but what that raised in the in the liberty movement back at the time was the notion of executive overreach and that kind of propelled me to to start looking at guidance documents and i'm again i began inventorying those and back at that time, even though there, it, it was well known that they were a concern to the private sector, even the administrative conference, bipartisan, talked about this, we didn't know how many they were. The most I could inventory was a few thousand. Even after I wrote a paper called Regulatory Dark Matter, that, which is what I kind of took to referring to that phenomenon as, the House Oversight Committee commanded the agencies to cough up their guidance documents. They only got a count of 13,000. After, But we knew there were just thousands and thousands. But after Trump, we got the guidance document portals, which Biden has revoked. And that's back to, you know, how did things change with, between Trump and Biden? Now I can tally, and I just did this about a month ago, at least 107,000 guidance documents. So I try to integrate that, too, into the regulatory narrative. And that we wouldn't know that. We wouldn't know that 107,000, Patrick, had Trump not done that executive order. You know, and I would mentioned, you know, a lot of things Trump did that were far from deregulatory. They were very much regulatory. But I'm very grateful for what he did on the guidance document disclosures. Now Biden is, has commanded his agencies to remove the guidance rules and you know take down the portals and well. But one quick thing on the numbers this year too, it, it is the case that the Biden numbers in terms of uh, rules and pages and whatnot, is ju- and, and I'm anxious to see what you guys discover this coming year, on the restrictions, when you look at that again. But they're returning to pre Trump levels. You know, Trump, for the first and only time, rule counts went below 3,000 under Trump. That happened in 2018. And that was the only time. New final rules, right? Uh-huh. New final rules. It, because even back in the 90s, you know, there were at least 4,000 a year. And and, and of course, this this gets to the points that we all make, too, about, well, you can't really tell anything from pages and rules because they could be long, they could be short, they could be fat. You know, it it could be a lot of things hidden within, you know, just the numbers of pages and numbers of rules. And that's utterly true. But the numbers and pages are creeping back up to pre-Trump levels but interestingly I found out just a week or so ago not they're not only just creeping up with respect to rule counts they just lurched because when I put this report out and you can still go onto federalregister.gov and do the count for 2021 last year and it says 32 3250 rules but actually, if you go onto the Federal Register's website and dig down into their PDFs where they keep their historical data, there were actually 4,400 rules last right year. The last time there were that many rules, and I'm not saying we, I, I know exactly what all those rules are. It'd be easy to, to determine. Well, actually, it's not easy to determine. The 3,250, you can go and read what they are. And this is one of the problems with disclosure. I call, I call Biden the Edward Scissorhands of disclosure and transparency. <laughs> you, now you've got 4,400 rules. I don't know what the heck that extra 1,100 rules are, only that they have, they have opened up and said, yeah, there are this many rules. It's a 46% increase over um, our, our previous rule count. But that's all we know. <laughs> so, but the the end game of that is the rule counts are back up to early 2000s levels when they were you know in the 4000s. Uh, you know, they've been higher than that, but it's been a long time since they've been this high. And the implication of that is if we found out in this year that the 2021 count was actually considerably higher, it may be that the 2500 rules that we think are in play so far for 2022... Maybe an undercount as well, and then, when you also consider what i'd mentioned before the big the fusions of spending and regulation with the the inflation act and the rescue plan and the climate plans and the executive orders that are not just and and the the cross agency directives like uh, like equity and climate and uh, and so forth there's likely to be a considerable surge in guidance documents too, so there 's a whole lot. For guys like you and me, to be concerned about, to try to monitor, to make sure that we express concern about, but also to propose solutions for. And you know, you know, the bottom line of that is have Congress make make the rules and make the law. And but I was, I was joking with some friends. I said, you know, it'd be great. Imagine if we did get all of this regulation under control. Heck, I've spent my entire career trying to do that and to say that's going to be – well, I never said that was going to be nirvana, but pretend I did. You know, that's going to be great. We get rid of all this regulation, we're going to have a much, much freer economy. But look what we've done in the past past three years in terms of these huge legislative enactments that are inherently regulatory in the wake of COVID. So even if we – wrestled down the administrative state, and even if OIRA was like USDA and had an employee for every, you know, USDA had an employee for every farmer, (laughs) If, if OIRA had an employee for every company and made sure that they weren't regulated, even if we got rid of all that regulation, given these huge legislative enactments, we're still regulated to death, even without an administrative state. So the liberty movement has got to think kind of in broader terms and a little bit of what I'm embedding into 10,000 commandments in that respect, too, is the notion of an abuse of crisis prevention act You know, to, to deal with this regulatory, uh, regulatory state that we have now. Because COVID was not the first, it was the third big economic shock of the 21st century. So, you know, we had we had 9-11 and we had the financial meltdown and we had COVID each time the response from the federal government was a massive expansion in its scope, in its spending, in its regulation. Each time we got new agents, new departments, even each time. And so that's the state we're in. And now here we are with a massive regulatory state, massive new legislative enactments that are going to lead to torrents of regulation. But you have to be optimistic and think when we talk about you talk about innovation, we we talk about the way to grow out of the regulatory state, I think, is to make sure that we leave the future open i mean you, you don't have to tell the grass to grow just take the rocks off of it and that applies a lot to the future most of the future none of the future is regulated yet and we can make sure that we don't have every new industry or every new sector be born captive to the regulatory state but unfortunately that's the way things are trending though i mean if you look at things like the uh the Biden competition council at the White House, they had their the big confab about a month and a half ago. And they're just they talk about intervention in markets like it's like the most natural thing in the world uh, at the summit of the Americas. It happened back in the summer. You know, Biden and Harris did the same thing. Oh, corporations and government, we need to work together and public private partnerships <laughs> you know, on down the line. There's literally nothing. I'd I said it earlier. Everything from local tap water to commercial space. Exploration is now being treated as if it needs to be a government and a business partnership. So we've got our work cut out for us, my friend.
0: <laughs> but you do have some bit of optimism, at least, and that's that's a good way to end things here. And, and I, I will just add that I was reading a report from 2019 in Scientific American. The title of the report was "Reduce Red Tape for the Red Planet." And they were talking about regulations, effects on Mars exploration and the likelihood of successful exploration in the future. So I want to say that maybe we can be optimistic about Mars, if nothing else.
1: We can be optimistic, Patrick, we can definitely be optimistic- about mars i was I was looking at you know there there are if you count the moons, there are over two hundred worlds in the solar system, so <laughs> say let's let let's let the administrative state have those other worlds, and we'll keep the earth, <laughs> but let's try to free things up here <laughs> but but not Mars too. Mars can stay free too but there, cause there's plenty of other worlds <laughs> that they can leave in the state of nature and regulate to death. <laughs>
0: The physics angle here and the space angle is relevant, not only because we can talk about green fields or red planets, as it were, but but also because it lets me mention uh, your analogy to dark matter again. I do want to let listeners know that you do have an, a report. I think you update it annually on dark matter uh, as well.
1: I haven't done it annually. You know, 10,000 commandments became annual, but that was because I sort of always saw it as sort of a, a – parallel to the fiscal budget, you know, and and just wanted to have that that sort of report out there. And and it's been really, really useful that way.
0: How many years, by the way, how many years have you done 10,000 commandments
1: now? Next year, it's going to be 30. Wow. So y'all are getting old. <laughs> but but yeah but like I mentioned the the way the dark matter came about was you know I was always tallying up rules and laws and you know kind of looking at you know the the, the multiples of rules over laws and you know looking at all the things that like you know like you and I get a kick out of doing but when the Obama administration was in place and the pen and phone phenomenon became talked about I was digging into it and just looking at this notion of guidance documents and you know looking back at in the George Bush era when actually Rob Portman at the time the senator now was OMB director had a memorandum a directive to agencies on looking at their guidance documents and submitting them if they to OIRA review if they were significant you know that sort of thing and I thought, well, you know, this is this is interesting. I thought, well, I wonder how many of these there are. You know, the obvious ones you knew about, and some of them were just in the news at the time because of kind of the cultural debate, You know, like the you know using the the uh, the restrooms and all that sort of thing. The cultural debate just cost a lot of that up. But then some of it was was occurring because of the um, it, the employment rules on independent contracting, you know, driven by the by the internet and with and with franchising rules and so forth. And I realized this stuff is just being governed not by law, and then not by one of the three thousand regulations that I count on my fingers every year, but they were being done by directives, guidance documents, administrators' interpretations, bulletins, circulars, letters. You know, there were all these names for it. I even made it like a joke word cloud, you know, and made a little blog. You know, made one of those word clouds that were kind of like a like a popular on the internet a few years back. And I start, you know, took to calling it regulatory dark matter and then I tried inventorying it. Now tally up over a hundred thousand. So I don't do this report every year. I am planning to do one next year. I've been doing it like every other. And then I would do these intermittent inventories. And now I maintain that that inventory of guidance documents live. I just keep, I just post it on 10,000commandments.com right there on the front. But um, I try to track them and I think it's important. And unfortunately it's going to become more important now in the wake of you know the the various bills that we've seen enacted that you know we took we you it, it was fun you know when we got first got into this stuff we said oh wow you know economic regulation we had this deregulation back in the late 70s and 80s you know airlines trucking banking how great that was we had a phase of economic deregulation well wow economic regulation is back in force now when we're talking about so much industrial policy and federal government involvement in some of our most critical frontier innovations frontier industries so i expect to see a lot more guidance and unfortunately that means the dark matter report you know is probably going to be more important or take up more of my time <laughs> we,
0: we can bring you back on the on the show to when you when you get that report together so that's that's good news for us we'll have a we'll have a follow-up next year when you have the next dark matter report and i i, I do want to point out that you've already said this but we don't really know what's in a lot of those guidance documents so it'd be it's interesting to to think about the the nature of these these documents themselves are they are they regulations some of them probably are in the sense that they they tell businesses or individuals what to do, and there's really no recourse. But others may may be legitimately guidance, and, and in some cases, there's probably a good reason to use that method of lawmaking, if you will, as opposed to uh, a formal. Or informal rulemaking, making a regulation, you know, if nothing else, guidance is a lot faster. And sometimes, especially these frontier industries, may want some fast guidance from from regulators. So there's, there's, I think there's a healthy debate to be had there, Wayne.
1: Well, that's the that is going to be the hook for there to be some bipartisan treatment and bipartisan reform of them, because we we've, we've seen the concerns that you raise and then the benefits that you raise are pointed out by for example the administrative conference of the US that looked at the guidance phenomenon the the caution i would i would say is this you've got you've got to be careful if you're doing guidance documents because you are already talking about an industry where government is controlling things that it probably ought not be be controlling or if it's doing it in a way that's going to ever preclude the evolution of property rights in that sector. Our colonial ancestors came up the James River and they stopped when they hit the rocks and they built the city there. Well, now in a sense, when you're trying to roll out new technologies, the cities can be the rocks and you need to do the innovations out in the hinterlands, develop new property rights and then grow new cities around that. That's one of the problems I mentioned, like when I I was talking about the drones and then those automatically defaulting into the guidance regime. So that's something that our movement and in, you know, the, the, policy world and legislative regulatory world in bipartisan fashion is going to have to work out. And it harks back to the point I was making about what I jokingly call an office of no, but if they actually use that term, I'd be glad. But making sure that you're addressing actual market failures as opposed to political failures before you go with a a central form of regulation that you can't extricate from. We can usually change business decisions pretty quickly, but not so much legislative or regulatory decisions.
0: Ironically, I would say that that imperative to address market failures is – it is indeed contained in the guidance that the president has applied to regulators in, in the form of Executive Order 12866. Uh, it just may not always be the case that that guidance is followed, but at least in principle, it's there on paper. Wayne, we're going we're gonna to wrap it up there.
1: Wow, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you for joining us. And if listeners want to read more of your report, the 10,000 Commandments, you can find that online at cei.org or apparently at 10,000commandments.com, as well as the the Dark Matter report that we've been talking about. I guess it's uh, from last year, but there will be another one in the future, and we will hope to have Wayne back then. Wayne, thank you for joining.
1: You bet. Thank you so much for having me. The Mercatus Policy
0: Download is produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Explore our research on pressing policy problems at mercatus.org. And for even more, follow us on Twitter at Mercatus.